Hey friends, if you're a fan of Already Gone, you probably love true crime podcasts just like I do. But what about cults, mystery, manipulation, murder? Cults are associated with all of these. But what goes on inside a cult? What is the psychology behind cults and what goes on inside the minds of people who join cults? If this interests you like it interests me, let me recommend a new podcast, Cults. Cults answers all of these questions and more. Each episode of Cults aims to explore the biographical profile of a cult's leader or leaders and how people can be persuaded and manipulated, not only to join a cult, but to commit horrible crimes. New episodes drop each Tuesday. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and do a search for cults. That's C-U-L-T-S. Or visit parcast.com slash cults to start listening now. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash cults to listen now. You are listening to the Already Gone Podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Before we dig into this week's story, I want to give you a preview of things to come. If you are a regular listener of the show, or if you follow me on social media, you know of the Oakland County Child Killer, a series of murders that happened near my childhood home in Oakland County, Michigan in 1976 and 1977. This case is one that I've followed since grade school. I keep waiting and hoping for a break something that will provide answers to the families who have waited 40 years to learn who took their children, held them for days, and dumped their lifeless bodies on the side of the road. In the weeks ahead, I will be looking at other child murders from Oakland County and the surrounding areas, crimes that occurred in the same time frame and may or may not be linked to the work of the Oakland County child killer or killers. If you struggle with cases involving children, fret not. We will branch out with a case from New York City that was big, big news, but you may not know the whole story. We will also explore the headline-grabbing torture and death of a General Motors executive and family man. I am going to again apologize for my voice this week. I've been battling an upper respiratory infection, and I'm still not at 100%, so... Thank you for bearing with me. Late June, 1991. The body of 20-year-old Kathy Nancurvis is found floating in the Portage Lake Canal. Nancurvis was an unmarried mother of two children. Her death, much like her life, doesn't get much attention. The Coast Guard is called to remove her body from the canal, which crosses the Keweenaw Peninsula and both originates and terminates into Lake Superior. She'd been in the water for nearly two weeks. A missing persons report was filed on June 11th, but someone like Kathy didn't get a lot of attention. Kathy lived with her children in a modest home in Lance, about 35 miles southeast of Houghton. She was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and relied on Social Security benefits to get by. Her two children, a two-year-old, and a two-month-old were found alone in the home. 
When the children were discovered, police searched for the young mother. Could she have decided that being a single mom with her disability was more than she could handle and took off for greener pastures? When her body was found by fishermen, the rest of the story wasn't made clear. There was speculation. Maybe she hooked up with the wrong guy. What a shame. There was hardly any mention of her death, which was slow and terrible, in the local papers. Just a blip or a blurb. Even though this was the first murder in Houghton County in 100 years, the stabbing and drowning of this young mother just wasn't newsworthy. The next murder, well, that one made the papers. Not just the up-north papers, either. Even the big papers in Milwaukee and Detroit picked up her story. Come with me, to the northernmost parts of Michigan, the Upper Peninsula, where we track a serial murderer in the places that we least expect it. But first, a word from our sponsor. Ladies, putting on good underwear in the morning is a key part of owning your day. Good underwear helps you feel confident, powerful, sexy, and ready to conquer the world. When they told me that me undies are the most comfortable underwear you'll ever own, I thought, nah, and then I tried them myself. Soft, stylish, and so comfortable. Whether you prefer a traditional bikini, the modest boy short, or a cheeky thong, there's a style, pattern, and fit just for you. Me Undies is so sure you will love their underwear, they even offer a 100% satisfaction guarantee. And if you don't love your first pair, you get a full refund. This is a limited time offer, so what are you waiting for? Start wearing the best underwear of your life. It changed my life, and it's time to let Me Undies change yours. Go to MeUndies.com slash gone right now. You get 20% off, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. What are you waiting for? That's MeUndies.com slash gone. Today's case brings us to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, the Twin Cities, or maybe more appropriately, Twin Towns of Houghton and Hancock. I'm vaguely familiar with this area for two reasons. One of my neighbors growing up was from Houghton, and she would take her kids, my friends, up north each summer for a couple of weeks to visit family. I would miss them terribly while they were away. Also, Houghton is the home of Michigan Technological University. Houghton is a college town. Houghton and neighboring Hancock, right across the river, are in the heart of Michigan's copper country. Houghton and Michigan Tech sit on the shore of Portage Lake. If you're thinking, well, that's a strange place to put a tech school, the university got its start in 1885 at the height of the mining boom. Originally called Michigan Mining School, the university has evolved in the 130-some years it's been serving students. Another geographical note? Because we're going so far north today, we're still in Michigan, but the setting is much closer to Milwaukee or Green Bay, Wisconsin, than it is to Detroit. This is the part of the Upper Peninsula that juts north into the center of Lake Superior. It's a very beautiful place. Plenty of outdoor activities. Hunting, fishing, hiking, boating, and skiing. The area surrounding Houghton Hancock is dotted with little towns, towns with names like National Mine, Dollar Bay, Quincy Mill, 
and Atlantic Mine. Links to its mining heritage abound. In 1991, people looked down on Kathy Nancurvis. They didn't see the loving mother, the beloved daughter, the young woman who struggled with self-esteem because of her illness. Despite my research, I've yet to see a photo of her or learn the names of her two young children, little ones who are now adults with no clear memories of their mama, children who lost so much. While the disturbing death of Kathy Nan Curvis was written off, at least in part, to her own poor choices, the next killing was different. The second victim was just a year younger than Nan Curvis and lived in the same area, but the two could not be more different. Jody Watts was the daughter of a Michigan Tech employee. She was dark-haired, athletic, pretty. Majoring in biology and living on campus, it was a wintry night in January of 1992 when Watts, her schedule just a little bit off like many of her fellow students, went for a late-night run. And when I say that Watts was athletic... She was a 1990 graduate of Houghton High School, where she ran track, was on the swim team, the golf team, and the ski team. That's four varsity sports. And while she lived in the Michigan Tech dormitory her freshman year, by sophomore year, she'd moved into an apartment with friends. January 21st, 1992. 19-year-old Jody Watts bundles up and heads out for a run. It was a 12-degree night in mid-January. That's negative 10 Celsius. But Watts wasn't the only student out that night. When she dressed to go out, she put on her letter jacket, and it would be found near her body to help police identify her. Watts was petite. At 5 feet tall and less than 100 pounds, she was smaller than the 5 foot 2, 115-pound Kathy Nan Curvis. For my international listeners... Both women were about 1.5 meters tall and less than 52 kilograms. It was 2.45 a.m. when Watts was discovered. She'd been beaten, stabbed, sexually assaulted. But despite her injuries and her nakedness, she'd dragged herself more than 150 feet trying to get help. The opening of the parking garage where she was discovered by a cyclist was across from the police station. The cyclist covered her with his jacket and ran for help. But it was too late, and Jody succumbed to her injuries. Jody's death made all the papers, and not just in the Upper Peninsula. We read about it in Detroit as well. The nearly 7,000 students at Michigan Tech were worried about the brutal murder of a fellow student, and their families were concerned as well. The Upper Peninsula is safe, low crime. And that's a real draw when you're choosing a place to send your kids to school. Now, Jody's father worked at Michigan Tech, but I don't think that influenced how quickly the school moved into action, stepping up patrols, encouraging students to go out with a buddy instead of going out alone. Young women who usually went out on their own now waited for a ride or walked with classmates. They wanted to be safe. If law enforcement looked at the Nan Curvis murder and the Watts murder, they didn't appear similar. Nan Curvis wasn't raped. She was drowned. And then she was stabbed afterwards, her body dumped in the canal. Watts was beaten, stabbed, and raped, her body left in a parking garage in the center of town. 
One was a young mother living with her two small children. One was a college student, an athlete from a good family. A connection appeared unlikely. Looking at Kathy's murder, we will later learn that her killer feared that if he didn't stab her, she would float and be recovered. He wanted her body to sink, sink or be washed out into the vastness of Lake Superior. And Lake Superior lives up to its name. Not only is it the largest freshwater lake in the world by surface area, it is the third largest lake in the world by volume. The Ojibwe Indians call it Gichigami, or Great Sea. If Kathy's body had made it to the big lake, it's unlikely it would have been found. While Nancurvis was the first murder in Houghton County in 100 years, the death of Jody Watts was a similar rarity. Ralph Raffaele, the chief of police for the city of Houghton, said that in his 23 years on the force, they'd never had a murder. He'd asked around, he checked with some of the old-timers, and their best guess was that it had been 50 years or more since there'd been a murder in the city. Nancurvis's home was far from the bustle of Houghton, in Lance, a small community about 30 miles south of Houghton-Hancock. Now, if they'd gone through the known associates of each woman, 20-year-old Kathy Nancurvis and 19-year-old Jody Watts, they might have seen a name in common, because each knew the man who killed them. He's not someone they would have feared, not this upstanding member of the community, this father, husband, this churchgoer. Beneath his placid demeanor, a monster was at work. But sadly, it doesn't appear that anyone connected the two murders. In the days following Jody's murder, donations poured in, raising the reward from $1,000 to $10,000 for information leading to the arrest of her killer. Meanwhile, the reward for information about the death of Kathy Nancurvis was at $2,500. The Michigan Technological University Board met, and they decided to allow campus security to carry guns. The students needed to feel safe. Meanwhile, specialists were called in from the Michigan State Police, and they came from Marquette, a hundred miles to the east. The FBI was involved as well. And despite their best efforts to find the man who snuffed out the bright light that was Jody Lynn Watts, her case also went cold. In September of 1992, eight months after Watts' brutal rape and murder, the Detroit News ran a story titled, A Town's Innocence Lost, covering the aftermath of Jody's death. The death of Kathy Nancurvis was discussed in this story, as was the increase in self-defense classes for women in the wake of the murders. You hear that term quite a bit in true crime circles. This was when the town lost its innocence. But these two murders, in June and January, brought horror to a town that hadn't seen anything like it. And the expression finally rings true. Something changed in Houghton. Something real and tangible shifted in the community. While the community's faith in law enforcement did not waver, Police Chief Raffaele admits that despite help from the state police and the FBI, they were no closer to solving Jody's case than they were in January, and that they were still looking for and following up on tips as they came in. It would take another attack for this case to be solved, and the next attack was months away. 
Thankfully for students and families, the 92-93 school year was uneventful. Any fears parents or students harbored about the safety of the campus were put to rest. There were no more attacks. No more bodies floating in the canal. Just a typical school year, like so many that came before. It was a panicked phone call on a summer night in June of 1993 that brought this case to a shocking conclusion. Across the river from Houghton, in Hancock, a woman made a desperate call to 911. Someone was trying to break into her apartment. She could hear him. Please send help, and please hurry. When police arrived, they found 38-year-old David Goodrow on the street outside her building. Goodrow was in possession of a kit which the police searched. In the bag, they found what can best be described as a kill kit. If you're a regular consumer of true crime stories, you already know the contents. Knives, duct tape, latex gloves, lubricant, a ski mask, a tire iron, and a video camera. In the glove compartment of Goodrow's 1985 Oldsmobile, they also found an unregistered handgun. Police took Goodrow into custody and placed him under arrest. He was the last person anyone would have suspected in the 1991 and 1992 murders. David Allen Goodrow was a local, a 1973 graduate of Houghton High School, the same school Jody Watts attended just a few years earlier. Goodrow was an honor student in high school. He played basketball, and he was a musician playing trombone in the high school band. A college graduate, he'd studied forestry at Michigan Tech, and after graduation, he took a job with the Social Security office. The job took him to Aurora, Illinois. He would later transfer to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and finally back home to the Upper Peninsula, to Houghton. In 1991, he was working as a Social Security field representative. Kathy Nan Curvis was one of his clients. The Watts family, including young Jody, they were his neighbors. His last victim, the woman who called the police to report a break-in, sparing her life and allowing for his capture, she was another one of his Social Security clients. If you asked someone the traits of a serial killer, David Allen Goodrow is not who they would describe. The six-foot-three, 260-pound man with dark hair and a thick mustache was a churchgoer, an active member of the Calvary Baptist Church of South Range, which he attended with his wife and two young sons. He enjoyed playing on the church softball team. He sent his boys to a Christian school. Goodrow was kind, friendly, helpful. His neighbors expressed disbelief. They couldn't reconcile the man that they knew— that he was responsible for such terrible crimes. But the woman who called 911, she recognized him. She knew who was trying to break in. She'd seen him before. Goodrow had selected her as a victim the same way he'd selected Kathy Nan Curvis. He'd visited their homes. He knew their weaknesses, and he used that to his advantage. In the aftermath of his arrest, there was a community-wide awakening that Kathy's murder had been written off. Her reputation caused many to say, both publicly and privately, that maybe Kathy was asking for it with her behavior. 
After Goodrow was arrested, people recognized how unfair this was, and that Kathy deserved much better than what they had given. The realization that she was harmed by someone who she thought she could trust was a sobering one. Goodrow was placed under arrest on June 24th, and police searched his home. Evidence recovered from the home he shared with his wife and sons linked him to the earlier murders, and Goodrow confessed to killing both women. He told police he'd approached Nan Curvis's home that June day and peered in the window. She was nude and sleeping on the couch. He let himself in and tried to force himself on her, but was unable to perform. He took her from the home to a secluded area near the water, where he again tried to assault her, and again he couldn't perform, so he drowned her and pushed her body into the water. Seeing that she was floating, he got a knife and stabbed her repeatedly, hoping her body would sink. Instead, she floated away, only to be discovered two weeks later. He'd seen Jody Watts out late at night, when he was driving, and he parked a block ahead of her, waiting for her to pass by so he could grab her, drag her into the parking deck and attack. When Goodrow left her battered body, he assumed she was dead, but Jody was young and strong, and she managed to survive long enough to drag herself to the entrance of the garage, right across from the police station where she was discovered by a cyclist around 3 a.m., but Jody's injuries were not compatible with life. For his third and final attack, Goudreau was prepared. He packed a kill kit. He knew his victim's apartment and planned his assault. But he didn't anticipate her hearing him breaking in and calling the police. I find it hard to believe that Ann Curvis was his first victim. In 1983, he was arrested in Aurora, Illinois, for assaulting a woman at a park. She was out on her bicycle, and he pulled her off the bike, but she was able to fight him off and get away. Shortly thereafter, he transferred to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and finally up to Houghton, his hometown. When the news of his arrest and confession broke, it didn't take long for law enforcement in and around Grand Rapids to pull up cases from 1984 and 1986 to see if they could be attributed to Goodrow. But they were unable to link him to any open or unsolved cases. Goodrow gave a lengthy confession, admitting that he'd pushed Kathy's head under the water and held her there until she drowned, that he'd been out driving around and spotted Jody Watts jogging through town. He drove ahead and waited for her, grabbed her, and dragged her away. He knew she recognized him, so he asked her if she would tell. Could he let her go and trust that she wouldn't tell? But her answer was strange and garbled so he stabbed her repeatedly and left her in the parking deck to die. At the end of 1993, Goodrow is preparing for his trial when he decides that he's going to take a plea. You see, police had a lot of evidence against him. A confession, the attack on the third victim, items from the first two victims in his home. While his attorney will speak of what a good religious man this was— the man that chose to plead out and not put the families through a trial. But what his attorney didn't mention is that the insanity defense Goodrow sought was not available to him. He had three psychiatric evaluations and three separate determinations that he was fit to stand trial and be held accountable for his crimes. 
Even the Houghton County prosecutor, Douglas Evans, described Goodrow as a very religious man. A religious man who waited until his wife and two sons were out of town at Bible camp to put in motion his attack on the third victim. This explains the gap between the second and third attacks. They were nearly 18 months apart. Goodrow told police he brought the camera to record the assault, hoping it would sustain him longer, being able to relive it with a video. His murder trial was scheduled for January of 1994, but Goodrow ended up taking a plea. Two counts of first-degree murder. The other counts against him, rape, kidnapping, assault, carrying a concealed weapon, among others, those were dropped. As he stood before the judge when he agreed to the plea, he said that, quote, I felt I was influenced by satanic forces at the time of the crimes. The judge sentenced him to life in prison without possibility of parole. Prosecutor Douglas Edwards reassured the community that Goodrow will never get out, and so far, Edwards is true to his word. Goodrow is in the Saginaw Correctional Facility in mid-Michigan. He is 61 years old and will likely remain in prison until his death. Goodrow's wife, Kathy, changed her name and eventually left the area. Kathy Nancurvis's daughters grew up in Houghton County and are now in their late 20s, years older than their mother ever got to be. Jody's younger brother, Chris, he left the area and now lives in Ohio. Douglas Edwards served as the Houghton County prosecutor for 20 years and still lives in the area. Ralph Raffaelli, the Houghton police chief at the time of the murders, he spent 40 years with the department before retiring, and he passed away in 2013. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned that I find it unlikely that Kathy Nancurvis was his first victim. There's a new podcast called Leap in the Dark, a cold case investigation into the 1989 disappearance of Rose Peterson from Calumet, a community near Houghton. Could she be one of Goodrow's earlier victims? If you would like to talk about the show, please join us on Facebook in the Already Gone podcast discussion group. Follow the show on Twitter at Already Gone Pod. Questions, comments, or feedback? Email me host at alreadygonepodcast.com. This week's episode was a listener's suggestion. Several people requested that I cover Goodrow's crimes. Thank you. Please check out our sponsors, the new podcast, Cults. With a new episode out each Tuesday, search for Cults in your favorite podcatcher or visit parcast.com slash cults. Also, me undies. Start wearing the best underwear of your life. Go to MeUndies.com slash gone right now. You get 20% off, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. That's MeUndies.com slash gone. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. <laughs>